What keeps on surprising me is, of course, how it resonates with people from all over the world. It's about basic human things that we need and are in need of now. For instance, rituals. But also, like, especially Margaret Atwood and all the other authors, points out it's a hopeful project. It's an act of optimism. Believe that there will be human beings in a hundred years, a library, there will be books, that the next generation actually will care and take on this job when I'm dead. Welcome to Anything But Silent, from the British Library and to a new year. I'm Cleo Laskarin, and as we enter the 2020s, we thought it would be fitting to start the year by exploring a collection of projects that are looking forward into the future. The clip you just heard is from one titled The Future Library, and later we'll be hearing how authors including Margaret Atwood, Han Kang, and David Mitchell have been contributing to this 100-year piece in the Nordmarka Forest in Norway. We'll also be heading to the Makerspace at Oxfordshire County Library, an initiative investing in the future by making robotics, code camps, and 3D printing available to its users in a dedicated space. But first, I want to start with some robots of our own. We begin at the British Library in Boston Spa, West Yorkshire, our amazing location in the north of England. As you would expect, Boston Spa has its own reading room and a host of resources available to researchers, but it's also there where a huge part of the British Library collection is stored. I met with Mark Yelland in one of the British Library's coolest buildings, Building 31. Okay, welcome to Building 31. Uh, my name is Mark Yelland and I'm the ASB Day Manager. The main task that the staff do here in Building 31 is retrieval of uh, items for the reading rooms at St Pancras. So the readers will go into the reading rooms at St Pancras and order a particular item and if it's held here in Building 31 then we'll retrieve it for them and it will go, be sent down to the reading rooms overnight on the link van. In the additional storage building, or ASB as Mark referred to it, we entered an area called the Void, a cavernous space filled with literally millions of books, but absolutely no people. Wow, there it goes! <laughs> it moves fast! So, I mean, it doesn't really look or feel like anywhere I've ever been before. It's a really, really big room with rows and rows of racks of white plastic containers with all kinds of printed material in them. So it looks like there's some magazines and journals and books. And it's, it's a huge space. And then down below, there's sort of like runners. And then underneath that, there's even more. Oh, whoa, I did not realize how far down it goes. Huge robot cranes tower amongst the shelves to do the manual work of picking and returning items. And so the cranes, which are like robots, That's right. that retrieve the containers, That's really tall, it's as tall as the room, and it moves really fast along sort of a single track at the bottom. It almost looks like a, I guess there must be one at the top too. It's pretty loud. The um, container will be on the racking, then as soon as the request goes through and somebody's assigned to it, the crane will pick that container, 
then bring it down and send it on round on the conveyor belts to the workstation. The sheer scale of the building, the quantity of books, and the way the system is automated is really impressive to see up close in person. And another mind-blowing thing is that rather than each book having a set place on the shelves, the computer instead decides where to store them by arranging them in the most energy-efficient way. Popular items gradually move forwards, while lesser-used items make their way further back into the darker corners. You've got maybe 8 million potentially collection items in here now, with a potential to go up to 11 million. And you've got this automated system for retrieving things. What does that enable to you to do? Okay, so we've only got the, the six workstations, so we can retrieve these a large number of items with just a small amount of staff. So we have six people working on the workstations and we'll supply anywhere between 300 and 600 items a day to the reading rooms at St Pancras. And then along with doing all the other tasks that we have to do, such as returning items to the containers, and supplying items to our reading room here at Boston Spa and also supplying items digitally as well if we have to scan them through to, uh, to customers as well. It's pretty dark in here and it's pretty cold. Why is that? That's because of the low oxygen. So it's minus 15% low oxygen in here. So um, normally you wouldn't be able to light a match in here because of the low oxygen. So that's to um, obviously prevent fire and keep the material you know, at a, a constant temperature to help with the preservation of the items. So it's really all about sort of saving these things for the future then? That's right, yeah. We've got a lot of different material in here, not just monographs and serials, but there's also um, LPs and CDs um, and a lot of you know, different types of uh, material, going back to, you know, the 1800s, trying to keep this material for as long as possible. A similar automated system is used in Building 32 at Boston Spa, which houses the UK National Newspaper Collection, comprising of more than three centuries of local, regional and national newspapers. While robot cranes and machinery help us access the vast collection of books, newspapers and research papers at Boston Spa, there are all sorts of other formats, old and new, that fall under the British Library's collection remit. In fact, at Boston Spa, there's a whole team of digital preservation experts. Hey, how's it going? I'm Cleo. Nice to meet you. You too. My name's John Beeman. I'm the Preservation Repository Manager here. I'm a member of the digital preservation team at the British Library. Brilliant, and I think you're going to take us through to see something yes. kind of cool? that's right, something we call the Flashback Lab. Great. So if you follow me this way... Yeah, um, you lead the way. Okay. So welcome to the Flashback Lab. So we're in a pretty large room and there's a, a row of desks running around the outside with a bunch of old computers lined up along them. And they're mostly that sort of beige, early computer color, um, which they don't make them like that anymore. What you can see before you now is a range of legacy computers and PCs, roughly ranging from the early 80s through to the 1990s. Uh, I think we creep into the early noughties as well. <laughs> but we have these machines here, not just for the interest of people who come here. But these machines perform a, a very important function 
for some of the work that we do, in particular for a project that we call the Flashback Projects. So I'm seeing a few joysticks and various other things around the room, but obviously you don't have these things here for playing games. That's very true, that's very true. We do sometimes run games on these machines, but the main function of these machines is actually to be able to display legacy software. So in other words, software that was designed for these machines. So we can see what that software actually looks like and the way it functions on the original machine that it was, it was designed to operate on. Can I try it out? You can, you what, can. What's the best bit? If you double click the on the icon, robot, that's right. Asimov's ultimate robot. <laughs> uh oh, are we frozen a little bit? That feels true to form. Greetings, <laughs> I'm Robotron. Make a selection, please. So while it's pretty cool to come in here and see all of this old technology, it feels like a real step into the past. It occurs to me that really this is about preserving these things going forward into the future. That's absolutely right and one thing I'm always keen to point out is that the flashback lab and all the machines in here understandably they evoke all sorts of images and memories for a lot of people but this really is just the tip of the iceberg. The key to the work that we do is we have to preserve all digital content both legacy content and content going all the way into the future for all of our future generations and we have to protect our cultural heritage. Thanks to digital preservation expert John Beeman, as well as Mark Yelland, my tour guide in Building 31 at the British Library in Boston Spa. I found it really interesting to hear about the different ways the library is employing tech to preserve items for the next generation. The challenges increasingly seem to be about keeping pace, scaling digitization and emulation, building awareness, and preempting what's next. But while things like automation are helping the library move at a greater speed, not all future-focused projects are following the same thinking. In our next story, we're journeying to Norway for a totally different approach. I'm Anne Beate Hovind, and I work for property developers in a big transformation of the harbour in Oslo in Norway. And uh, we build the public spaces, and therefore we had a budget for art in those public spaces. So I'm Katie Patterson. I'm an artist. I work with concepts, visuals, and in many different mediums. And I make artwork that generally deals with time, space, landscape, nature, things like light bulbs that simulate uh, moonlight, a map of all the dead stars in the universe, and a, recently a color wheel which charts every color in the evolution of the universe from its beginning to its end. So I'm representing the commissioner who commissioned Katie Patterson to do an extraordinary artwork for the harbour. And I've produced it since the beginning. And since it's my job to make it happen, but also to make it last, I'm also chairing the trust I've set up. 
I've never made an artwork alone. It's always been in collaboration with experts in other disciplines from astronomy to cosmology, geology, perfuming even. And so I think quite early on I realised the kind of ideas that I've got, I don't have the expertise to, to make them happen and it often needs a lot of knowledge from other areas. So Katie Patterson was invited to come to Oslo and do research and come up with a proposal for this context in the harbour. And then after a week, I think, she called me and asked, she needed to stay in the forest. She thought she had a brilliant idea, but she needed to kind of test it out in a way, and, and she needed to stay in a cabin in the forest for a week. And she asked me if I had a cabin like that, or if I knew of some. But you know, I'm Norwegian, and all Norwegians have cabins in forests. So I took her to my family cabin. It's really, really deep in the forest. And after a week, she came out of there almost literally, and she said, I had a perfect idea for you. And I was so curious, you know, I was really so curious, what is she going to propose? And then she proposed something that was totally, totally unexpected. I wouldn't even dream of her saying, first, it's going to last for 100 years. So Future Library is an artwork that's going to evolve over 100 years. It takes place in Oslo and I've planted 1,000 trees, which in 100 years time, when they're fully grown, they're going to be cut down, pulped, and then a book is going to be made from those trees. And every year we're commissioning a new author to write a piece that will be printed on those trees when they're fully grown and cut down. The forest is one aspect of it, and then another aspect is the room that we're just opening this year, May 23rd, um, that I've built using the wood that we took away from the forest to start with. And that's been a collaboration with the library for several years now. And it'll open to the public and it's going to hold the author's manuscripts for the century to come. So nobody can read those texts, but they're, they're there and they'll be visible through the glass, kind of peeking through in this room that we're calling the silent room. As new manuscripts are commissioned each year, authors participate in something called the handover ceremony, committing their words to the project in a sort of ritual amongst the trees and a growing group of attendees in the forest. Your rituals are becoming more and more central to this. I think maybe I didn't realize that at the beginning, but to sustain a hundred year project, it's really important to keep it moving and keep it living now. So one thing that we developed quite at the outset really was this idea of something happening in the forest itself every year and that that would stay, stay grounded, stay simple. It would be the author bringing their manuscript and it would be up to the author to decide actually what they chose to do, whether it was a reading or we've had um, poetry, we've had a choir actually and a golden harp and a whole number of things. But it was to create chapters in a way and each author is part of those chapters so that it's always moving, it's always changing, and then the people come, they, they take the walk with the author, and we gather together in the forest and they hand over their manuscript. It's simple, but it's really, really special because it's a kind of magical place. And, you know, there's an author who's written something wonderful, we won't be able to read it, but there they are handing this over for future generations who, um, you know, none of us will, will read these words now but it's almost like a, a kind of gift for, for those who don't exist yet. Master dystopian novelist Margaret Atwood of The Handmaid's Tale has been an advocate of the Future Library since its inception, 
and has spoken many times about why the project appealed to her. Well, I thought it was a wonderful idea, and it appealed to me immediately, so I instantly said yes. It does appeal to that side of us who, as children, buried things here and there, little little trinkets, little boxes, hoping that somebody would dig them up later. It's very optimistic to believe, to do a project that believes that there will be people in a hundred years, that those people will still be reading, that they will be interested in opening all of these boxes and seeing what's inside them, and that, they, and that we will be able to communicate across time, which is what any book is in any case. It's always a communication across space and time. This one is just a little bit longer. Several years ago, we were being told that everything was going to be digital. It turns out that it's not. As guardians of unread works by some of the world's best authors, I think many people would find it too tempting to not take a sneak peek. But for Anna and Katie, it's not even a consideration. That's where the weight lies. It's a hopeful project. It's an act of optimism because it's actually believed that there will be human beings in a hundred years, a library, there will be books. Of course, people ask me, so why do you care? I mean, you're going to be dead, and the artist is going to be dead before this is finalized. Because, so for me, it's not about the manuscripts or the final books. For me, the beauty is in the process to actually be present and take part of it. It makes sense for me. And then I say, well, uh, I don't have any other choice than trusting people that the next generation actually will care and take on this job when I'm dead. But for me, it's a kind of a mutual thing that they also have to trust me. the voices of artist Katie Patterson, as well as Commissioner and Chair of Trustees, Anabita Hovind. What a cool project, and how weird and exciting to think that work by some of our most celebrated authors, such as Margaret Atwood, will stay secret for the best part of a century. As they mentioned, this spring the Future Library Project will be opening the Silent Room, where you'll be able to catch a glimpse of the manuscripts locked up in their special containers at the Oslo City Library. To find out more, including details of this year's handover ceremony in the Nordmarka Forest, head to futurelibrary.no. I have to say I really love the Future Library's commitment to the long process and ritualism. In today's world, that feels really important to just slow things down. But in our final feature today, we're spinning the dial back in the opposite direction as we travel to Oxfordshire County Library to hear how librarians there are helping users get up to speed with the future of tech. So I'm Mark Sutcliffe. I'm a digital information and learning librarian. We're in the makerspace today in Oxfordshire County Library. I certainly see libraries as being a really important place for the future. Kind of live in a society where increasingly places are becoming commercialised, places that you have to pay to be in. I think libraries can really sort of play an important part in developing the skills for the future. When I started off in libraries, I started working in an academic library where it was very much about the books. 
And as I moved into public libraries, I've certainly seen that kind of idea that the library is just the home of the book changed dramatically. Increasing importance of computers and then I can remember Wi-Fi being introduced into libraries. And at the time that was like a major thing. But, you know, it just seems, it just seems so obvious now that libraries need Wi-Fi, they need spaces for people to come in and get all sorts of digital help from our volunteers and our staff. All sorts of activities that I would never dream of when I was growing up in, uh, and using this library as a child. Four or five years ago, we started seeing code clubs coming up in our libraries, working with the Code Club, which is a kind of national organisation to get children learning about coding. And we quickly saw that there was a huge appetite for this from the people of Oxfordshire. So like, we would start a club and within a week or so, there would be a huge long waiting list. There would be a lot of demand. So we were starting up as many clubs as we could. We started hearing about us to makerspaces coming over from American libraries. I mean, at the first it was a bit odd, why, you know, why, why do people need to make stuff in a library? But then the phrase digital making started to appear. I think that's a really interesting concept for me personally, creating digital skills for the future, for our economy in Oxfordshire. On a personal level, I can remember growing up and thinking like the idea of becoming a computer games developer just seemed like akin to, I don't know, becoming an astronaut or something like that. And so, yeah, the idea of digital making, a place that you could really come and take your skills a bit further, kind of learn from other people, share what you've learned, that was, just seemed a really exciting idea for me. And it just seemed like, wow, this is, this is really the future and this is what we need to, to get happening. During an extensive refurbishment of the library towards the end of 2017, Mark and the team saw the opportunity to create their very own dedicated makerspace. Today it's a thriving hub, offering everything from coding meetups to language exchanges, Raspberry Pi jams, virtual reality introductions, and even free 3D printing sessions. Okay, and then we start building it. Obviously 3D printing also is just amazingly exciting to see and to watch. The idea that you can kind of create anything that you can imagine is just yeah, really exciting. So now we're going to start uh, 3D printing. It's almost become like a bit of an icon for library makerspaces, so we are starting to see a few more 3D printers around. One of the problems that I've seen with 3D printing is that often there's no classes in how to use it. So it might be that there's a 3D printer and it's in the room, but there's no information about how you go about using it. So we're really lucky that we get lots of volunteers that come in and help out in the makerspace. And that's something that I really wanted to have happen with the, with the makerspace is that it's not just the library providing this and teaching people, but actually this is kind of community space where everyone comes and brings something different. Yeah, really lucky to have some volunteers who help out with the 3D printing. It's quite, quite unique, I suppose, and certainly it's something that people are quite surprised at when they come in and, and see that the library's got a 3D printer. I tend to think of us as that being like the wide point of the funnel, really. So we give people that kind of taste that sparks their journey and then they take it as far as they want to. Classes and groups at the Makerspace cover all ages and levels of expertise, from children making their first forays into programmable robotics to meetups like Free Code Camp, where attendees can learn software and web development skills. And while the imagined stereotype of a coder might be a hoodied hacker working secretively in a darkened room, the reality here is quite the opposite. The atmosphere is warm and collaborative. Maggie, now a keen coder, is one of the attendees who stumbled on the sessions with no prior knowledge. My name is Maggie Wang. 
I always like libraries, and uh, wherever I go, I always try to visit libraries. So I come here now and then, just borrowing books or sit here reading magazines. So one day when I passed this door, there was this poster that says Free Code Camp. So I thought, oh, what was that? So when I looked, uh, found this Free Code Camp online, checked what, who they are, what they do, it uh, seems they just... Uh, just for anyone, just to have a try and free. So I did a, a couple, one or two sessions and, and I came to this meetup. And the really just from there, I found I, I really, really liked it. So the impact on me, I don't know, words cannot uh, describe. It's just things from then on, it's almost not a single day I'm not doing any code. I, I code it every day a little bit. If I'm not uh, coding, I would uh, like watch a coding-related uh, YouTube or listen to a code-related uh, podcast or just, just learn it every day a little bit and, and uh, I'm absolutely enjoying it. It never occurred to me that the library would do something like this, but yeah, I'm pleased that they, they did. Inspiring me to learn something and develop certain skills I would never have uh, even thought to do if not for that little poster I came across a year ago. Charlie is another Free Code Camp member who's become a regular face at the Makerspace and an advocate. He uses the sessions as a way to support a career transition, having previously worked in construction. Hi, my name's Charlie George. I'm a web developer apprentice at the moment. I've just started, so that's a three-year degree course. Before that, I've been working mostly in construction, but recently going through different volunteering groups for coding. And now I'm attending these groups at Oxford Library for the free code camp that Mark Sutcliffe runs. Career-wise, yeah, it's opened lots of doors for me, especially on the VR day, because we've had so much interest, different people coming from different areas, using that to share on social media, and that's really helped build my professional profile online. So that's really pushed all of my content out there, which has helped with networking, of course. Coding, it has all of these connotations surrounding it, like it's not just about learning how to code, like you learn how to read. The mathematical kind of operations that you're trying to figure out actually helps you problem solve and you can apply that to you know lots of real life scenarios it's really great for anyone who wants to get into it just hope we can share it more and more people get involved what's been really inspiring is just seeing a community coming together and starting to form free code camp has been for me it's been amazing i've learned a huge amount myself from running them but also seeing people going on and, and getting jobs in the industry, that's been really inspiring. Libraries have always kind of run community activities and community events. So for me, I kind of see the Makerspace as a natural extension of that. So the libraries fundamentally are a place of learning. And I think the Makerspace just allows people to have that freedom to say, OK, we, we can run coding sessions, we can run creative writing sessions, all sorts of things that really once you start thinking about it, there is no limit as to what we can offer. Hopefully more libraries will take this on. We can really kind of create a great ecosystem where public libraries work together and share what works for them. I really hope to see that we can continue to kind of collaborate and really kind of redefine what a library can offer. Just offering a different view of what a library can be is really inspiring to see and hopefully sparks people's imagination and makes them think differently about the places that they're in and the technology that's becoming an increasingly important part of our lives.
These are all sorts of things I could never have dreamed of when I was starting out in libraries. I think it's a really exciting time. The future, I don't know, it's going to be really exciting to see what happens in libraries as we go on. Thanks to Mark Sutcliffe and the Makerspace team at Oxfordshire County Library. It's great to hear how the project is impacting people of all stages, from children to hobbyists, onto those looking to change career. And in fact, more and more libraries across the country and the world are setting up similar Makerspace projects and variations such as Fab Labs and Imagination Stations. If you're interested, have a Google and see what's near you. Often, sessions are available completely free of charge. Science fiction master Ray Bradbury, the author of Fahrenheit 451, was once quoted as saying, Without libraries, what have we? We have no past and no future. And although we've only scratched the surface, I think the projects we've touched on today really sum that up. If you've enjoyed this episode, please hit subscribe and let us know what you think by leaving us a review. Remember, the British Library, like many libraries around the world, is free and is open to everyone. We're based at St. Pancras in London and Boston Spa in Yorkshire, and at bl.uk, where you can explore our collection from wherever you are. Anything But Silent is a PixiU production. We'll be back next time with our accompanying series, Joining the Library when we'll be inviting the award-winning designer and futurist Anab Jain to speak about a book that has helped shape her thinking. But until then, from me, Cleo Laskarin, thanks for listening. Mm -hmm.